Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at hm.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. As I hinted at during the last episode, this week will focus on the life and times of Narmer, a powerful nomarch from Thinis, who would eventually become Egypt's first true pharaoh. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Before we begin, I'd like to announce that monetary support for the podcast will now be done through our Patreon page. If you sign up for just $1.99 per month, you'll receive a bonus episode each week that focuses on an interesting topic related to that week's episode. That's 50 cents, the price of a gumball, per premium episode. In order to keep our commitment to free education, these episodes will be purely bonus content and will not interfere with the main narrative of the podcast at all. Anyways, now that the podcasty stuff is out of the way, let's begin our dive into the unification of Egypt. Episode 4, Birth of the First Pharaohs. So, As we discussed last episode, Egypt had experienced a long trend of further centralization during the pre-dynastic era. Agricultural settlements coalesced and expanded into cities, and these cities became the bases of power of small states called gnomes. Local tribal leaders experienced an increase in power and fashioned themselves nomarchs. Some of these nomarchs conquered their rivals to increase their power base. By 3200 BC, Lower Egypt remained divided between many gnomes, but Upper Egypt had united under just three cities, Thinis, Nechen, and Nekaterian. Several powerful leaders from these cities had come to dominate the others, but none of these burgeoning states survived beyond the death of these powerful rulers. Narmer's story begins with his predecessor, a man named Scorpion II. Well, kind of his predecessor. He may have also been Narmer himself, just at a different stage of his career, but, well, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Scorpion II was most likely a ruler of Thinis, born not long before the unification of Egypt. The evidence for his existence comes mostly from an artifact called the Scorpion Macehead. This artifact features an illustration of a nomarch. He wears a tall crown atop his head, a symbol associated with rulers of Upper Egypt. On his left stand a pair of fan bearers, and on his right stands the symbol of a scorpion, from which his pseudonym is derived. He is also depicted with the tail of a bull, further increasing his noble status. Egyptians associated bulls with being animals of great prestige, and therefore pharaohs often wore bull tails on their belts. In his hands, he holds a mattock. Based on this, we can infer that the mace head shows him directing an irrigation project. In the background, a series of plover birds hang upside down. In Egyptian art, plovers were used as an artistic depiction of the common peasantry. Most archaeologists interpret this as meaning that Scorpion had recently subdued the people of this land, and is using the irrigation project to establish his rule over this new domain. Some archaeologists have also connected Scorpion to a rock carving near the second cataract of the Nile. Cataracts are part of a river where the smooth flow of water is broken by a series of shallow rapids, making them nearly impossible to cross by boat. The Nile has six of these cataracts, and they would play an important role in shaping Egyptian history. The first cataract is located near the modern city of Aswan, slightly south of the ancient city of Nechen, and historically served as the default border between Nubia and Egypt. By default, I mean that in periods of relative parity between Egypt and Nubia, 
their borders would meet at this first cataract. The rest of the cataracts are located within Nubia, so they don't concern us for now. This rock carving at the second cataract depicts an enormous scorpion lording over a group of Nubian soldiers. Some speculate that this carving is meant to symbolically depict a victory of Scorpion II over a Nubian army. The location of this carving at the second cataract shows that Scorpion was able to penetrate pretty far into the lands of Nubia during this campaign. Scorpion, despite having a pretty long biography compared to other proto-dynastic Egyptian rulers, remains just as mysterious as the others in terms of his place in Egyptian history. Egyptologists mostly fall into three camps regarding who Scorpion was. One theory follows essentially the biography that I laid out for you earlier, and posits that Scorpion was a nomarch of Thinis who existed just before the life of Narmer. In this view, Scorpion's conquests were a precursor to the later conquests of Narmer, that Scorpion walked so that Narmer could run. Scorpion was the first Thinite nomarch to crown himself the pharaoh of Lower Egypt, and Narmer would carry on his legacy through the union of Upper and Lower Egypt. The second theory states that Scorpion was not a predecessor of Narmer, nor was he a ruler of Thinis, but was instead a contemporary of Narmer's and the ruler of a rival city. So, the dating of artifacts in Egypt is not incredibly precise. Usually, the time in which an artifact was created can be estimated to a range of about 200 years, this is pretty impressive when you consider how old these artifacts are, but imagine if someone tried to tell you that the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1976, or that World War II ended in 1745, give or take 200 years. This margin of error leaves a lot of room for when Scorpion's life occurred. He could have lived long before, slightly before, or even during Narmer's life. In this second theory, Scorpion was a ruler of Nechen around the same time that Narmer ruled Thinis. There is some compelling evidence for this too, as the previously mentioned Scorpion Macehead was found in Nechen, and Nechen's southern geographical position would explain his conflict with the Nubians. While Narmer was most well known for his conquest of Lower Egypt, some archaeologists believe that Upper Egypt was also politically disunited during Narmer's lifetime and that Scorpion was one of the rivals that Narmer had to either ally with or defeat to unite the region. The third theory, and the one that I personally find the most compelling, is that Scorpion and Narmer are, in fact, one and the same. Narmer, as well as pretty much all later pharaohs, would use multiple names during his life. Narmer, for example, is what we call a Horus name, essentially the Egyptian equivalent of a royal title, while Menes was his birth name. For that reason, it's not unlikely that Narmer also possessed a third name, Scorpion, that he used early in his reign. The main support for this theory comes from the similarities between the depiction of Scorpion on the Macehead and the depictions of Narmer, to the point that they are essentially identical. While it could be that these depictions were meant to capture the essence of a pharaoh, rather than their actual physical appearance, the intense similarity of these depictions is worth taking into consideration. A comparison image will be posted to the podcast blog if you would like to see this for yourself. Another piece of evidence used to support this hypothesis is the existence of another artifact depicting Scorpion, known as the Minor Scorpion Macehead. This artifact very strongly implies that Scorpion ruled over Lower Egypt as well as Upper Egypt, and ties him strongly to Narmer. So, assuming that Scorpion and Narmer are the same person, how he came to power remains unknown. He may have been a descendant, relative, or close friend of Ka, and succeeded him to the throne of Thinis. As we discussed last podcast, Ka was an incredibly influential ruler, 
with signs of his rule being found throughout Upper and Lower Egypt. This rule over Lower Egypt, though, was likely a name only, as evidence for his rule in the region is limited to just a couple instances of his name popping up on artifacts, and there is no evidence of Ka ever being able to collect taxes in the Delta. So, Narmer found himself in control of a powerful, yet fragile, Thinite Empire. He controlled a vast territory in name, sure, but this territory was really only useful to him if he controlled the loyalty of his subjects within. Usually, when the ruler of an unstable state dies, a bunch of ambitious nobles decide to try and seize the throne or establish power bases for themselves. This was likely true when Narmer took the throne of Thinis, and so the first few years of his reign were not spent expanding his holdings, but rather trying to secure Upper Egypt under his grasp. Narmer negotiated some Upper Egyptian nomarchs into an alliance known as the Thinite Confederacy. The scorpion macehead likely depicts this stage of Narmer's rule. In this depiction, Narmer wears the hedget, a long, bowling-pin-shaped crown, which symbolized rule over Upper Egypt, meaning that he had yet to unite all of Egypt at this point. As we noted earlier, there is compelling evidence that the macehead depicts Narmer consolidating his rule over recently conquered land. After a series of conflicts with rival nomarchs, Narmer and his allies had stabilized their rule over Upper Egypt. With the loyalty of Upper Egypt ensured, Narmer could now turn his eyes to the ultimate goal, Egyptian unification. Narmer faced one remaining problem before he could launch his invasion of Lower Egypt. Sending his army north would leave Upper Egypt vulnerable to raids from Nubia. So, Narmer sent his army south into Nubia, launching a short invasion that stopped at the Second Cataract, and signing a peace with the locals to ensure that they wouldn't try anything while his army was gone. With peace in Nubia secured, Narmer's invasion of Lower Egypt could commence. We know little of Lower Egypt at the dawn of Narmer's invasion. Some scholars have claimed that Lower Egypt underwent a similar process of consolidation and unification as Upper Egypt, but I find that the evidence for this claim is pretty unconvincing. Before Narmer, Ka was never truly able to integrate this region under his rule, but the fact that he controlled the region even in name makes me doubt the existence of a united Lower Egypt. I see it being more likely that Lower Egypt had fragmented after the rule of Double Falcon into a couple dozen small gnomes. The only evidence of any sort of united rule of Lower Egypt comes from the Palermo Stone, a list of Egyptian rulers compiled much later. The existence of these dominant Lower Egyptian nomarchs is debatable at best, and even if they did exist, the lack of their royal seal on artifacts from pre-dynastic Lower Egypt shows that they were most likely rulers in name only. Therefore, Narmer's conquests of Lower Egypt were less so a war between two equal kingdoms, but rather a bloody slog through an alliance of Lower Egyptian city-states. Upon subjugating the last Lower Egyptian polity, Narmer commemorated his victory with the creation of one of the most important historical sources of all time, the Narmer Palette. If you'd like to visually follow along with my descriptions of the palette, I'll be posting a picture on the podcast blog. The Narmer palette provides an incredibly stark picture of the view that Narmer projects of himself. On the front side of the palette, Narmer wears the familiar crown of Upper Egypt. In one hand, he wields a mace. In the other, he grabs the hair of a defeated foe, primed to bash in his skull. This man, a depiction of a lower Egyptian nomarch, is labeled with the name of his gnome, Wash. Below the feet of Narmer lie the corpses of two other nomarchs also labeled with the names of Lower Egyptian gnomes. 
As if to add insult to injury, a falcon, the symbol of Nehen's guardian deity, watches this execution approvingly. It was not enough for Narmer to show himself destroying the lower Egyptians. He had to make clear that the gods were on his side in this conquest. Because these people had technically been subjects of Thinnis before Narmer's invasion, the campaign in Lower Egypt likely resembled less a conquest of a foreign state, and more so the destruction of an internal revolt. Generally, the crushing of revolts in ancient times was far more brutal than the conquest of foreign enemies, as it was seen as necessary to make an example of rebellious peoples. We can see this brutality on display in the backside of the palette, with rows of decapitated bodies in front of Narmer. Narmer leads a victorious procession. He towers over the other men, as if to emphasize his divine superiority, and wears a crown called the Deshret, a crown worn by lower Egyptian nomarchs. The other men of the procession carry long poles with the symbols of Upper Egypt's protector gods, an interesting artistic choice that we'll discuss in further detail in just a little bit. Below this procession, two mythological beasts with incredibly long necks, known as sepopards, twist their necks in a sort of binding embrace. These beasts were worshipped as protectors in both Lower and Upper Egypt, and therefore this symbol can be interpreted as a metaphor for the binding of these two halves. The final section of this palette shows a bull, the symbol of the pharaoh, trampling over a Lower Egyptian man. I don't think you need me to explain this one to you. So, Narmer has now militarily asserted himself as the sole authority of Egypt. This is an achievement for sure, but the hard part would be maintaining this newly united country. After all, like we discussed last episode, the Mahdi people of Lower Egypt were completely culturally distinct from the Nakata people of Upper Egypt. Upper Egypt most likely spoke a Cushitic language, while Lower Egypt spoke a Semitic language. Their gods, lifestyles, and artifacts were all incredibly different. To unite these lands, Narmer would have to create an entirely new Pan-Egyptian culture. The first step in this cultural unification was the creation of a new religion. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll remember that at this time, Egyptian gods largely fell into two categories, fertility gods and local protection deities. The protector of Abydos, Henti Amentu, was not widely worshipped in Nehen, where the falcon god Neheni was the supreme divine figure. As we saw on the Narmer palette, Narmer's procession marched with the symbols of multiple local gods, not just those from his home city of Thinnis. These gods were all incorporated into Narmer's new religion. Henti Amentu became Osiris, Nehenni became Horus, and Neketirian's protector beast became Set, god of the desert. As he conquered Lower Egypt, many of the local gods were also incorporated into this new religion, like Neith, the goddess of war and the patron god of the Lower Egyptian city of Sais. In addition to incorporating Lower Egyptian gods into this new society, Narmer also went to great lengths to incorporate Lower Egyptian people into his family. After his conquest, Narmer took a Lower Egyptian noblewoman named Neithhotep as his wife. Now, I know what you're thinking. Andy, how is seizing women from a conquered land supposed to improve relations with those people? And that would normally make sense. However, Neithhotep was no mere spoil of war. She possessed a very real degree of respect and power, and would even go on to briefly rule Egypt, making her the first female monarch in human history. If you'd like to learn more about Egypt's first queen, she'll be the focus of this week's premium episode. Egypt, after centuries of internal conflict between rival nomarchs, 
was finally pacified and unified. Narmer, then, turned his eye towards foreign policy. Relations with the Nubians were still stable from his earlier peace treaty, so Narmer's focus turned to the Near East. He led an expedition into the region of Canaan, known today as Israel-Palestine, for unknown reasons and with unknown means. Based on the marked increase of Egyptian-style pottery in Canaan after this expedition, his visit left a lasting cultural legacy in the region, but this impact did not outlive Narmer. I have a hard time believing that this was a mere trade mission. As one of the historical sources I've been relying on for this period, the writings of Manetho, states that Narmer won great renown during this expedition. And while it's possible, I highly doubt that Narmer's great speech skills and diplomatic prowess are what won him this great renown. My personal assumption is that Narmer took a small force to collect tribute from the peoples of Canaan, and established a sort of Egyptian soft power in the region. But that's just conjecture. Narmer's early reign was defined by violent conflict, so it might come as a surprise that his reign concluded in a prolonged peace. For this reason, I find it ironic that Narmer was killed in a violent manner. Manetho writes that Narmer was killed by a hippopotamus, an anticlimactic and honestly slightly wacky end for such a historically significant man. However, I'm not one for anticlimactic endings, so I'll add a bit of speculation. Some translations of Manetho that I've seen credit not a hippopotamus, but rather a hippopotamus god with the death of Narmer. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty skeptical of any claims that ancient Egyptian hippo gods are just wandering around killing pharaohs. So perhaps Narmer was poisoned, or murdered by a rival, or done in by some familial intrigue, and the perpetrator blamed this on the will of some hippo god. Or maybe he was just crushed to death by a literal hippopotamus while taking a dip in the Nile. I'll let you decide which story you prefer. Narmer was buried at Abydos next to his predecessor, Ka, in an incredibly humble tomb for a man of his importance. Perhaps Narmer's greatest achievement is in what didn't happen after he died. Rather than reverting back to a series of squabbling independent gnomes, as had happened after the death of previous rulers, Egypt stayed united after Narmer's death. Narmer's son was named Horus Aha, which means Fighting Falcon. Aha as the son of Narmer in Nithotep, was half Upper and half Lower Egyptian. However, this did not necessarily guarantee that his rule would be accepted by these newly incorporated Lower Egyptians. While Egypt was now under the control of one pharaoh, the kingdom was less one united country and more two separate countries stapled together by Aha's rule, an ancient form of a personal union. His capital, Thinis, was located pretty far south and thus pretty far from the delta, making it hard to regulate trade and taxation in Lower Egypt. Facing this problem, Aha made an incredibly bold decision to build an entirely new capital. This new city, Memphis, would be strategically located in the middle region between Upper and Lower Egypt, so that the pharaoh could keep a close eye on both of his domains. The decision to move the capital to Memphis may have also had a religious motivation, Aha was an avid worshipper of Neith, the goddess of war, and Memphis was far closer to Sais, meaning that Aha could spend more time in the temples, sacrificing to the war goddess. This shifting of the capital northwards would be the longest-lasting legacy of Aha's reign, and would permanently root the power of Egypt's early dynasties in Memphis. Throughout his rule, Egypt's foreign policy gradually shifted south. 
The treaty that his father had signed with the Nubians had expired, and war broke out soon after. This war likely lasted a long time, consuming much of Aha's attention and much of Egypt's resources. As Nubia became the focus of Aha, the Near Eastern region slipped further from Egypt's influence. For the next few centuries, the influence of the pharaohs was contained entirely to the Nile Valley. This decline in influence was coupled with the decline in trade, and the Middle Eastern influence in Egyptian culture would also steadily decline. Aha's reign lasted a long time, and, like his father, he was able to successfully pass his rule on to his son. The details of his death are unknown, but he left Egypt in a state of stability and prosperity. No prosperity lasts forever, though. Join us next week as we learn how the first dynasty of Egypt slowly crumbled into oblivion and witness a new dynasty rise in its place. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.